Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jeff Pooley, and this is New Books in Communications. I just spoke with Nick Coldry about his wonderful new book, Media, Society, World, Social Theory, and Digital Media Practice, uh, which was published in 2012 by Polity Press. The book is in part a summation of Coldry's rich, decade-long published work on media power, on media rituals, and what he calls the hidden injuries of voicelessness in a media-centric world. He also wrestles in the book with the implications of the rise of digital and social media, as well as worldwide cultural diversity on those earlier reflections. And he concludes that they still hold up, though with revisions and qualifications. Uh, The book also argues for what he calls a practice-centered approach to media research, which has fascinating implications for the field's scope and direction. Throughout, the text carries on a rich conversation with contemporary social theory, and even in its last ethics chapter with moral and political philosophy. It was really a pleasure talking to Nick Coldry about the book, and I hope you enjoy We're here today to talk to Nick Coldry, author of Media Society, World, Social Theory, and Digital Media Practice. Welcome to New Books and Communications, Nick, and thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. Well, thanks very much, Jeff, for the opportunity. So I'm especially excited to welcome you today because this is the first installment of New Books and Communications. Uh, I've been following your work closely ever since I was working on a paper many years ago that was bemoaning the lack of engagement with Pierre Bourdieu within communication research. And I stumbled then across a paper of yours that really quite brilliantly reworked Bourdieu's field theory to talk about media power in an entirely new, refreshing way. And I was quite happy, I have to say, at the time to have my thesis denied. And I have uh, been reading your evolving take on media and social theory ever since. And for listeners, I'll just say uh, Media Society World is a sweeping, um, extraordinarily rich work that lays out from, from the ground up, really, an approach to studying media that is centered on the lived practices of everyday life, but which, you know, un, unusually in some ways for an approach like that, nevertheless places power at the center of the book's analysis. It's also highly unusual within media studies for the way that it actively engages with contemporary social theory. Despite, and maybe we'll talk about this, the fact that that literature typically neglects media-related issues. And Media Society World, for, for listeners who aren't yet familiar with the book, is written against the, the backdrop of rapid changes in the media landscape. Um, it's such an important book um, and such relevance for the entire field that I thought it was fitting for uh, Nick's new book to be the obvious choice to kick off new books in communication. So thank you. 
Well, thank you. So before getting to the body of the book, um, I wanted to ask you quickly a little bit about your background. Um, If I'm not mistaken, you came to the field relatively late after another career. What was it that brought you to media research? Well, I have to admit it was pretty much chance. Um, I uh, I did have a, two previous careers, really, first as a lawyer and uh, then to get out of the law as a sort of musician and uh, curator, semi-professional. And uh, by chance, I took up a media master's in the early 90s at Goldsmiths in, in London and found at last I'd got a topic which was able to connect all my intellectual interests up. Um, but that brings out that from the beginning, I really approached media not um, because out of a love for media in themselves as sort of separate objects, but really from the point of view of what a mediated world, a world full of media, a world where we take the existence of media institutions for granted, how it differs from any previous social world. So I've always been interested in the characteristics of the social world from the beginning rather than starting with media as such and then reaching out from there to find out how it connects with social theory. Sure. So, uh, you know, in keeping with that theme that has been with you throughout your study, I was curious uh, about sociology in particular uh, throughout the book, you use the phrase media sociology, and early on you talk about sociology as the, as the most relevant discipline uh, to your approach. Uh, could you say something about the particular importance of sociology, and, and maybe with reference to the relationship of the discipline to media research in Britain, uh, uh, which is sometimes fraught? Uh, uh, and you, you, you note, for example, I remember uh, the neglect of media questions and lots and lots of social theory, um, which is for you an opportunity, but it's also a puzzling, right? So why sociology? Well, I suppose insofar as I've got any systematic uh, training, it would be in sociology. Um, My first degree was actually in classics, Latin, Greek, and philosophy, so pretty remote uh, area, but I was interested in sociology in an amateurish way way back then. Um, But since I've become interested in media and started to read about it, I think my approach has always from the beginning been mainly uh, operating through a sociological frame. Sometimes an anthropological frame, I'm also very influenced by some anthropological theory, but above all a sociological frame. Um, And it's true that I was often shocked um, in reading broader sociology at how any reference to media interfaces television, radio, the press, how absent they were, even from the very best social theory. So if, for example, we take a really great work like Anthony Giddens' The Constitution of Society from the early 80s, uh, a really remarkable, comprehensive work that still is of a lot of relevance today, there's no discussion of the role of media institutions there. Um, That in spite of the fact that Ten years before, Giddens had written about the role of archiving as a fundamental power form in society, and that a few years later he started to correct for that in uh, his book, The Consequences of Modernity, when he started to think about globalization and media. It was really Giddens and then John Thompson at Cambridge, and also in a different way, uh, Annual Castells, who started to introduce media questions into their, their thinking about social ontology. 
But this has been a slow process. So you can look, for example, at an authoritative history of social power by John Scott in Britain, written in the early 2000s, that still doesn't mention media. An extraordinary gap. And yet, um, media studies uh, in Britain was from the, the beginning, populated uh, for the most part by people who came out of a sociological background. Uh, James Curran admittedly was a historian, but he quickly followed sociology quite closely. Um, Colin Sparks, uh, Nicholas Garnham, and so on, all operating quite closely in the sociological framework. There were others coming more from a literary or film background, but sociology was at least half of the mix in Britain. And to that extent, it was a little bit different from the States, where I think it's fair to say that rhetoric, um, never present in Britain in the same way, was an important factor. And also psychology, various forms of quantitative social science were much more important than, than in Britain. So in a sense, I'm typically British in my approach to media studies through the lens of sociology. And to that extent, I just had to take on board the paradox that the subject I felt most affinity with most of the time had no interest in what I was interested in, i.e. media. Yes, I've experienced uh, the same bewilderment uh, reading otherwise brilliant tomes like uh, Habermas's Between Facts and Norms from the, the mid-90s and coming across references to media scholarship when they happen that are you know, 30 years old and are mis <laughs> misinterpreted at that. Um, so, right, this book in particular uh, brings up themes that I've seen in your other books, uh, but brings them together and also brings forward changes in digital media to the fore. Uh, how did this book come about? And, you know, what's its relationship to your past work? Well, it, it is, as you just implied, an attempt at a, a sort of a summation to date of the various themes in media theory that I've been interested in. Um, it didn't quite start in such a grand way. I, in the mid-2000s, I had an idea of a book that maybe would gather some themes together and that would in some way be inspired by John Thompson's book, The Media and Modernity, from the mid-90s, a book I greatly admire that had attempted some sort of a synoptic approach and tried to develop mid-range theory, useful theoretically informed terms for describing the weave of experience and media's involvement in it. Um, the book got interrupted in the late 2000s, um, mainly because for political reasons I decided I had to write a completely unconnected book about voice as a sort of protest against neoliberal culture, and that took about two or three years out of my schedule. Um, but there was another reason for slowing down the book, which was that around about 2007 and 2008, as social media erupted, as the sheer complexity of media interfaces took off beyond almost anyone's ability to track them, I started to um, become, like most people, rather anxious about whether my way of thinking about media to date was going to last, going to stick, be relevant enough to the new ecology we were entering. Um, for a while, I puzzled over whether some of my earlier ideas, such as media rituals and the idea that societies are mythically centered around media, whether they were relevant to the 
the world of plural media, the world of constant, but constantly changing, constantly fragmenting media. And I gradually convinced myself that they were relevant, and they were even more relevant because more and more institutions, such as governments and corporations, would increasingly depend on their ability to go on convincing us that we needed to pay attention to media, that media needed to be ever more closely woven into our lives. So once I got over that hurdle, I set about trying to refashion some of my earlier work and break it down into various themes that would amount not perhaps to a summation because I think by that point I'd abandoned the idea that anyone uh, could sum up the range of conceptual tools one needed to understand contemporary media, but at least a collection of various starting points and various larger scale arguments that I thought were part of the, the base line, if you like, the, the basic toolkit that one would need to begin theorizing about um, the contemporary world and its infusion with media from a sociological perspective. And I will add that, sadly, given the confines of a one-hour interview, we're only going to be able to touch on the richness of those mid-level concepts that appear throughout the book, in fact. Um, and, you, you know, we'll return in a few few minutes to the media ritual question and the myth of the mediated center. But in the meantime, uh, I want to focus on the body of the book, and in particular, your first chapter, where you lay out an, an approach to media theory that you call socially oriented media theory. And to, to set this up, you ask readers to imagine a pyramid uh, with four apexes, right? Um, at one corner, you place the political economy of media production. Uh, on, on a second corner, you designate medium theory, which is focused on uh, the technical properties of each medium. And uh, a third corner is devoted to media texts. Um, and the fourth corner, the final one, is what you call socially oriented media theory. Um, so what do you mean by this phrase, and what makes it an important a supplement to the other three corners? Yeah, what I mean by it, and it's a little inelegant as a phrase, um, socially-oriented media theory, is an attempt to find a sort of um, mid-range level of description that gets above the minor details to point to the sort of wider patterning that's going on that is oriented in the way it formulates theory to understanding social order or at least the possibilities of social order and how they might be changing uh, and the possibilities of social belonging and so on and social form and so on. Now, you might say that that was a sort of obvious banal starting point and surely was the main reason any of us studied media in the first place. But in fact, um, it isn't. And that was the reason for the pyramid. Um, I'll come back to why a pyramid in a moment. But I think for quite a long time in the 1980s and 1990s, it was obvious that there were two dominant traditions of understanding media and doing media studies. One was to take, start from the text to study how a film text was put together, how a TV soap opera worked and what its form was. And the second was political economy to study the economics of the institutions that have produced that text. Those two approaches were gradually corrected by audience studies and reception analysis, which pointed out that neither of them could tell us about the difference that audiences make to interpreting the text. 
types of institutions are produced. And I came out of that audience studies approach. But that audience studies approach started to run into the buffers when it realized that it was very difficult to say anything definitive about the difference that audience interpretations made in the wider texture in the social world. Um, so that got overtaken by a sort of broader environmental approach to studying the saturation of uh, social environments by media. And that's broadly the approach that I fit within, except that I put a particular emphasis on the links to social theory. Coming up uh, along the rails, as it were, against that broader approach in the past 10 to 15 years, there's been an approach um, inspired particularly by writers like Friedrich Kittler in Germany, but also by those contemplating the special features of the digital, such as Lev Manovich, who've increasingly emphasized medium, that is, the absolute features of media interfaces, including digital interfaces. And there's a lot that can be gained from those sort of approaches as well. But the, the problem I find with that type of work, which has become particularly popular recently, is that it is not curious about the social consequences and the ongoing and changing social consequences of media interfaces once they're put into practice, once they're embedded in everyday life. And it's that ongoing process with all its complexity that I think a socially oriented media theory has to help us grasp and find a theory for, if you like. Why a pyramid? Because I'm not claiming that my approach to media theory is the best, better or best approach. It's perfectly possible to flip the pyramid up and, and emphasize the, the other approaches that I've mentioned. But I wanted to put this forward as one of the four approaches that were, were feasible and one that was most oriented to the problems that social theory has traditionally been oriented to. Which takes me back to a point we didn't quite get to a moment ago, which is that if I sum up the basic aim of my work in studying media from a sociological perspective, it's my key interest is to find, and I'm still a long way from getting the answers yet, as what difference media institutions and their actions and their contents make to social ontology, to the types of ordered social world that we can inhabit. And that's a theme that you do pick up in later chapters. And you already mentioned in passing just now uh, the importance of practice to your yeah. approach. And, you know, the second chapter, it's incredibly rich. We could spend an hour just talking about that second chapter. You, you lay out there a, a practice approach uh, to media. And, and here you draw on, uh, but also critique work in what's being called practice theory by figures like Theodore Shatsky. Uh, and you illustrate in a number of different examples uh, the range of what you're calling media-related practices um, in, in a sense that's much broader than what we typically think of as a media audience. And so I'm wondering if you might you know, elaborate on this a bit. What, what do you mean by media-related practices, especially maybe in contrast to more text-centered approaches? Um, you use this lovely example of televised football matches, um, uh, soccer matches, and you might use that to, to describe what you mean by media-related practices. Yes. If, let's we take the example of a soccer match, then um, the approach 
that was dominant still really into the early 2000s in doing any type of media approach, uh, media studies, was to say we're, we're in interpreting a few people in front of a television watching a soccer match that they are reading and interpreting and commenting on the text of the program, which would consist of the, the commentary, some sort of um, uh, attempt to transcribe what was going on on the screen, and so on and so forth. And there are some exceptional cases where that is the best and the primary description of what people are actually doing, where they are football fans, soccer fans, who are looking very closely at what's going on, interpreting it intensely, and maybe sending comments to other people. Um, but even when we mention that sending comments to other people, it quickly becomes clear, particularly in the era of social media, that people now almost automatically go beyond the text to comment, to create new levels of text, and so on and so forth. Some of that complexity around the text was already recognized in audience studies in the 80s, John Fisk and so on. But what's increasingly become clear and it was pointed out by Herman Balsinger back in an article in 1983 that reading the text is only one of many things we do with media. To give a simple example, I might not be a fan of me, football or soccer at all, but I'm just watching the TV to keep my partner company or keep my kid company as they watch it. Or I may be watching just to fill in time before something more important comes that will automatically interrupt it and so on and so forth. I may be watching to be a firmer group identity or in a, to avoid watching something else. There are endless possibilities here. Now, on the face of it, that opens up an abyss of description. There's no limit to what practices could be involved. But it, handled in a more controlled way, it opens up the possibility that there are a whole range of things that we do through the acts of watching or reading or consuming media. And it's just as possible to focus on those acts that go on through the frame or lens of that media act as on the act itself. And once you pose things that way, which comes naturally out of what's called practice theory, which starts from the banal and very simple starting point for social description, which is to ask, what are people doing here in front of us? It opens up a whole range of ways in which we can do something we call media studies far beyond the bounds of direct consumption or production or distribution of media texts. So to give another example, media in various ways in terms of the managing of media relations and so on make a difference to all organizations now. They make a difference to the classroom, to the hospital, and so on and so forth. These are all areas where we can be studying the difference that media makes, which have been so far rather under-researched in media studies, but are all part of this much wider field of what I call media-related practices, which are basically any regular and ordered things that people do that are in some way related to the use of media, and that also includes the possibility of actions which involve avoiding media. Another thing that media studies has, for obvious reasons, tended to uh, neglect up until this point, but as media more and more come to saturate our environments, becomes increasingly important, our practices of avoiding media. I found the chapter completely uh, revelatory in that respect, and you know, it's affected the way that I think about 
what counts as the object of our study. Um, now, I mean, in, in this, the next chapter, it's the third chapter, you have already mentioned that previous work of yours has looked at media rituals and media events. Uh, you've uh, developed an argument around what you've called the myth of the mediated center. And in a way here, you are updating these ideas. Uh, you already addressed this a little bit. Um, you're, you're taking into account cross-cultural diversity uh, on the one hand, um, but also the explosion and fragmentation of digital social media. But I want to bring up something that you've just mentioned in passing in terms of what you call social ontology. Uh, you're also keen here to stress that the social world isn't fully ordered by media, or ordered in any way, in fact, uh, uh, from the beginning. And here you draw on the recent work of Luke Baltansky, um, but that social life is fundamentally plural. And so this is a question you spend the chapter addressing, um, but how do you then reconcile something like your strong account of media's power and centrality with uh, this focus on the plurality of social life? Well, it's not an easy thing to reconcile, uh, uh, but I think it's the crux of why our whole field is one which studies media as a separate domain, a domain of special importance, rather than studying um, culture in some broader way. So we have to address it. We can't run away from this problem. I think that social reality is fundamentally plural. There's a whole range of value frameworks within which we can live. And it was uh, Boltansky and Tabernow in their great book on justification who really insisted that we couldn't start from anything else but that basic plurality, which is not to deny the importance of doing critique or finding out about the world. It's just to start out from its inherent complexity and lack of resolution as to, to value uh, and justification. But having made that clear as a starting point, and then making clear a second point that the world is institutionally very complex. There are lots of different competing institutions that in different ways can at various times put forward different value claims and so on. Nonetheless, we live in societies, most of us anyway, which are characterized by the overwhelming prominence of certain institutions that we call media that dominate the instruments and the mechanisms of representation. They have the capacity to circulate representations of everything else that's going on, including themselves and the importance of their own activities. Um, and that puts them in a very, very special position in terms of power. It's certainly not the case that media are, are the most powerful institutions of society because they don't control the means of physical violence and they only control one small element of economic drivers. But they do possess a very special capacity, which I call, following John Thompson's symbolic power, which is the ability to, to uh, have control over the circulation of symbols and above all to have a special privileged power over the circulation of social representations. Now you might think a social representation is like any other symbol, it just circulates and that's the end of it. But the whole point about a social representation is that as it sticks, as it gets repeated, as it gets embedded in everyday life, it has the capacity to construct Help, or help us construct the life we lead together uh, and to, as it were, 
become almost invisible because it becomes part of what we take for granted as what's out there, as what our world is. Which means that symbolic power itself is very easily uh, disguised and disappears into the mix of everyday life and the excitement and the joy of just getting on with things. So symbolic power is a very special and disguised form of, uh, of ordering that I was very encouraged to see that Luke Boltanski in one of his later books started to get on to deal with, even though he starts from a pluralistic point of view, he emphasizes in his recent book on critique that the power of representation and controlling representation is a fundamental form of power in contemporary societies. Um, Now, I'm not saying for one moment that there's not contest and conflict over those powers. And indeed, the rise of social media, the extraordinary influence of Google, uh, the power of search and so on and so forth, are new forms that that contest over symbolic power is now taking. Um, And in that sense, the myth of the mediated center that I talk about is now very much contested. It no longer takes only one form, and it's of particular importance to the future of media corporations and all the other uh, forms of corporate and economic life that depend on um, infrastructures such as Google. Um, So that conflict is continuing, um, but I think it's really essential to understand its paradoxical nature that media institutions both are limited in their power, they're under economic threat, their economic models are more and more under challenge, and yet they more and more as a result have to claim their centrality, to claim that they are where we should be looking, that they provide the texture of our lives. Um, And often, very often, they have to draw on our energies, our efforts in Uh, saying what we like on Facebook and making more and more friends in our social media platforms, they draw on our energies to justify themselves as central to us. So they construct us, in some sense, as the root of their power. So the construction goes on getting more and more elaborate, more and more paradoxical, but I think equally more and more essential to economic value. So that was one side of your question. You also asked me, and I'll say quickly, about the importance of bringing my theory up to date to take account of globalization and the necessity for international comparison. Um, One book that's influenced me more than any other, I think, or uh, one of the most influential for me, at least in the past five or six years, is Marlon Crady's excellent work on reality television uh, in the Arab world, because that brought out the absolutely unacceptable uh, starting point of a certain Anglo-American perspective that dominated media studies really until the mid-2000s. And I have to admit, did silently shape my work as well. He brings out that there's no way that any large notions such as the myth of the mediated center or media rituals can be treated as existing above uh, national or cultural difference. It has to be worked through in forms which relate to the particular institutional balances of different countries, different regions, different parts of the world, where the social and political consequences of a particular media form, a media ritual, can be very, very different. So what I tried to do was slightly um, make more flexible my language to take account of that, but also to take account of the possibility that media rituals may be even more powerful in the impacts in, in, in a whole range of countries beyond those 
original ones that I took into account in my early work. The book is notable for taking this reflexive look at its own uh, cultural specificity. And indeed, in the seventh chapter, which I hope we have a chance to talk about, you address the, the sort of uh, diversity of media cultures uh, directly. Uh, so in the, the, the next chapter, the fourth one, you spend a lot of time talking about the hidden injuries of media power, uh, evoking that famous book, uh, uh, The Hidden Injuries of Poverty, um, by Richard Sennett and Jonathan Cobb. And here you're, you're referring to the concentration of symbolic power uh, in the hands of the media that you've just talked about. But looking at the flip side, that everyday life, you argue, is characterized by something like a, a painful lack uh, um, you call it a, a recognition deficit um, at one point. So what are these uh, hidden injuries? And what about the, uh, the apparent antidote, which, which would be perhaps media visibility? Why is that so unsatisfying? Well, I think there are sort of two levels to these hidden injuries. And you mentioned the Senate and Cobb book, Hidden Injuries of Class, which really has a book that's haunted me ever since I first came across it, because I think... Perhaps it was one of the very few books in classic uh, late 20th century sociology that, even without mentioning media as such, really got to the heart of questions of symbolic power. Um, symbolic power is interacted through personal relations and forms of discrimination. Um, so I've been haunted by that book for a long time and felt for at least 10 years that it had something to say about the violence, the corrosive impact of this concentration of symbolic power in media institutions, as I was talking about a moment ago. Um, the first level of the hidden injuries of media power is the flip side, if you like, of what I was saying about media's ability to control the representations of the social. If you accept my starting point that media institutions have an unusually privileged power over the ability to describe what's going on for us, what is there, what's, what's cool, what's important for us now, what is our now, then those who do not have access to that privileged power are in a very different position from those who do those who work within institutions, those who have some power over the workings of those institutions. Um, and I think for a very long time, media studies paid no attention to that asymmetry, that gap. And yet you only have to look at the rise of reality television, the way people behave in relation to celebrities, to realize that this gap has very real social consequences. It leads people to want to go on television to take huge risks and maybe damage themselves in the process. Um, the fact of that gap has become perhaps almost banal with the rise of reality television now, but it's still understudied as something that people actually carry in their lives. And I do give a few examples of how people, and there was a celebrity in Britain called Jay Goody who came from an ordinary background, ended up being vilified for her performances in reality TV, and then suffered the terrible, unimaginable pain of dying on television, or at least enduring the final stages of cancer. Um, um, under almost permanent media coverage. Um, those sort of examples are things, uh, cases that we really need to reflect upon quite deeply is the flip side of the power of 
um, media institutions. That, so far, was something that was consistent with my earlier work. But what I tried to do a little tentatively in the rest of the chapter was to think about the consequences of this uh, installation of media institutions as writers of the social on our long-term ability to see the social in certain ways. And I think, although it's a very difficult area to build up convincing arguments because the, the, the consequences take so long to take effect, but there's no doubt that we can start to think about the difference that the norms of media narratives make for the types of ways we can see the societies we live in. So it's a common paradox that in societies where media, where crime rather may be falling, an intense media coverage of crime as rising may lead to common perceptions that crime is actually rising. And that may justify certain interventionist practices by governments and others which make violence more of a norm in everyday life, which in turn leads perhaps to criminal reactions and so on and so forth. So media representations, when regularized, embedded in certain ways, can themselves potentially cause hidden injuries too. And I take that forward at the end of the chapter to think about the sort of norms of interpersonal interaction which are taken for granted in reality television. If we think of the long-term impacts of the makeover show, which particularly for women, but not just for women, present models of how bodies can transform themselves through certain types of physical change, which uh, are authorized and validated by certain media formats, these are important normalizations of how we what we aim for as human beings, how we should behave in relation to our ideals, and what sorts of authority we allow to judge us as we go through those transformations. And these may be things that in some cases we think are positive, but I think one doesn't have to get very deep into the history of reality television to see that many aspects of them are quite negative and corrosive, and they too are, in a sense, hidden injuries uh, of media power, not because they act in secret, they operate in front of our very eyes on our television screens, but because their effects remain hidden. Their effects are precisely not described by media institutions as part of what they do. That focus on the hidden aspects of the picture of the social world that media provide to us is just completely fascinating. And it made me think of, uh, in addition to the, the work you describe on reality television and, and what you referred to at one point, I think, as uh, the accidental pedagogy of reality television, um, but also the, the crime example uh, in which the picture of the social world supplied by the news media creates these sort of looping effects in a way that you address. Um, and it reminds me of some of the work on cultivation analysis and the cultural indicators project of George Gerbner at Annenberg using a very different set of methods. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to comment about that. Well, that's a good point. I mean, um, I have always admired the intent of the cultivation analysis approach um, in that it perceived absolutely correctly that the the real question, the, the, the deep question of at least the socially oriented media studies and media theory is what difference socially does the existence of media institutions make? Um, 
And it pursued that by looking at the difference to repetitive messages of various sorts on audiences as social and civic agents. Its great difficulty, however, was finding, was tracing, um, plausible consequences through statistical analysis. This was, of course, immensely difficult, and they ran into the ground in many ways. I think, nonetheless, the question and the intent was the right one. I, therefore, try and come at that sort of spirit, uh, that sort of question in a, a motivation in a different way by looking at norms, by looking at games, by looking at rituals, by looking at repetitive structures that embed within them certain values and representations. And here, obviously, I draw on the work of Pierre Bourdieu and others within social and anthropological theory. And I think reality television, for all its uh, superficial variety, is actually very rich in examples of norms and patterns and uh, uh, apparently uncontestable ways of doing things that do have social power simply by the act of their being repeated. If I could give a contrasting example that, again, might be relevant to cultivation and analysis, but in a very different way. I'm very interested in the, the role of apps on phones as the beginning of the creation of a standardized way of interfacing with the world as it increasingly becomes normal and normalized could itself change our sense of what there is out there to interact with in the world with very unpredictable effects at this point. Uh, the, the book's fifth chapter, uh, I want to turn to, it addresses some of the similar themes, but looking particularly at democracy um, in the digital age and takes what is self-consciously a kind of agnostic a view of what sort of democracy uh, is in question and instead critiques uh, the work of Manuel Castells, Yochai Benkler, uh, and Henry Jenkins, all of them for what in your words um, you describe as foreshortening the social. Uh, and you go on to describe in very rich, detailed media practice um, uh, grounded argument uh, that digital democracy and its prospects are uh, more complicated than those three put forward. Um, it's an important chapter, uh, but just so we don't go on for three hours. Uh, I'm going to, to skip ahead to the next, if you don't <laughs> mind, and uh, move on to the to the book's sixth chapter, which it brings up a figure that you already mentioned and who's also well-known for focusing on practice, among many other things, and that is um, Pierre Bourdieu. And here you're, you're interested in rethinking his field theory, and I think many listeners will be familiar with Bourdieu's approach to fields and also to um, different kinds of capital, including economic, social, and cultural capital. And here in this chapter, you you argue that there is a thing called media meta-capital, right, that spans across fields, uh, in some ways analogously to the, the field of power that Bourdieu associates with the state. Uh, and And this isn't to say that there aren't also and this could sound complicated to listeners, but uh, also field-specific bearings of media-related capital. So anyway, there's a lot to unpack here, but ha perhaps you could explain what you mean by meta-capital in this way. Yeah, sure. Um, if we, we start back with Bourdieu, Bourdieu's fundamental insight was the social world was not one simple, um, continuous plane, but actually was comprised out of a whole series of distinct fields where people 
and Pete for different and distinctive types of resource, which he called capital. So the political field is not the same space as the field of sport, for example. Uh, the field of journalistic competition is not the same space uh, as the field of advertising. They involve different types of capital. But that was all held together in his theory by the sense there was a wider field of power ultimately focused on the state, the French state in his work, um, which where the state had the, as it were, held all the reins of power ultimately and was able through its powers of legitimation, of certification, of controlling the resources of physical violence um, to uh, control the forms that capital took in the different fields and, for example, to control um, what would count as prestige in different fields by giving differential access to the status uh, of, of the state through honours and so on and so forth and through the controlling of the education system. All of which worked for 1980s and 1990s France but doesn't necessarily work for maybe any other societies and took no account of the role that media had. And what interested me in the early 2000s is that Bourdieu had somehow glimpsed a problem in his field theory um, which was the relationship between fields and the role of larger institutions that somehow stand above fields and control their interrelations. But he hadn't taken into account that media could be one of those larger influences. Uh, and if you talk to a, 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 a strict field theorists at that time, they would have said that there was only one way to understand the influence of media on fields, which was to understand the role of journalistic capital in the particular relations with the particular people in that field, which always struck me as far too limited a way of grasping the very general effect that media-related prestige, that media-circulated representations of the social have on our conditions of action in different places and different fields. So I came up with the idea of media capital, which actually borrowed on Bourdieu's idea of meta-capital, which had just previously described the, the role of the state in certifying capital, um, to somehow capture at least some aspects of what media do in the wider social space. So if we take the example of prestige and celebrity... I don't think it's accidental that celebrity culture has grown and that celebrities who uh, gain fame in one era, one particular subfield, can suddenly pop up in another and somehow be taken seriously very often. Gardeners on television can end up writing successful novels that people for some reason want to buy. This is not accidental because it's linked to media's ability to control terms, if you like, the exchange rate of symbolic capital, of prestige or reputation, simply because media themselves underwrite the whole mechanism of generating prestige and reputation through media outlets. So it's only the beginnings of a theory, but I have an idea that uh, media's role as the dominant concentrations of symbolic power affects the relationships that fields have to each other and it affects the ways in which certain fields become absorbed into others uh, and the boundaries between certain powerful fields cease to be that important. So that helps us understand, for example, the very close relationship now between politics 
and the general media field. It also helps us understand the way that the art world in recent decades, particularly in Britain, has more and more seen to be just a segment of the of the journalistic field, where artists have to write press releases, they increasingly have to court media attention, they have to produce artworks which are readily readable by journalists and readily fit into media forms. So that's that's the way I would un, uh, unpack that rather cumbersome-sounding concept, but I think it hopefully makes field theory a little bit more workable for... Uh, media theorists who are interested in media institutions' power across the whole social world and not just within particular fields. In keeping with that contribution and the, the book's overall interest in keeping the diversity of media cultures in mind in a way that, as you mentioned yourself uh, a few minutes ago, you might not have uh, realized as much, say, five years ago. Um, in your seventh chapter, you look at the diversity of media cultures. And there's way too much to cover in, in the chapter, but I want to ask you about uh, a provocative statement you make in the chapter, uh, which is that, and I'm quoting here, a territorial definition of media culture is incoherent, um, end quote. So, right, I mean, what do you mean by that claim about there being nothing coherent about uh, territorial media culture? Yes, here, and I'm drawing closely on my work with Andreas Hepp from uh, Germany, um, our view is that although we feel that media culture is different when we step off the plane from Britain and arrive in Los Angeles or New York, for example, uh, or go from France to India, we feel a different, we feel a different texture. That doesn't mean to say that we can describe what underlies that difference by describing a whole series of media cultures which map neatly onto bounded national territories. And the reason is that media contents are now constantly uh, and intensively flowing across national territories. And also the media consumption and production that goes on within any one place is actually intensely plural and contained of many different media cultures influenced from many, many different directions and contradictory directions. So it's not to say that there isn't a sort of territorial sense of difference in media culture wherever we travel, and indeed that's where we get the idea from media cultures from, but it's to say that it, the differences cannot possibly be explained in territorial terms. So in the, in the chapter I turn to, speculatively, to a different way of doing that in terms of underlying human needs. And this relates also to the normative drive of the final chapter of the book, which is that we turn to media ultimately because they fulfill certain basic human needs for sociality, uh, for access to economic resources, for access to basic information uh, and political collectivity, um, and so on. And that's the way I attempt to think about the almost infinite plurality of media culture when we think, as we have to now, on a global scale. And you bring up that, that last chapter about normative commitments, and it is in this eighth chapter where you make those explicit, although you know they really are present throughout the book, um, and I encourage listeners to um, read the entire book, even if you're just interested in the normative side of the question. But here in this chapter, you invoke the phrase media justice, right? Um, and you develop 
an account of justice and injustice that, among other things, invokes the idea of voice, a topic you also addressed in your last book. Um, I mean, the, t- the chapter is much broader than this, and among other things, talks about uh, an approach to media ethics, which is neo-Aristotelian and draws on the idea of human flourishing. But in particular, I wondered if you might talk about the, the idea of voice um, and address a question that obviously follows from it, uh, that is, how can we expect, to put it glibly, everyone to listen to everyone else? Well, um, we can't. <laughs> so there is a fundamental problem there. So in, if we step back and talk about voice for a moment, and there's something I discuss a bit more in the book, Why Voice Matters, um, it isn't tolerable to live in societies which are structured around the uh, suppression of voice which are systematically organized not to take account of each other's voices. Those societies are corrosive and intolerable. So we have to start out from the importance of voice. But recognizing that doesn't mean to say that we can uh, create institutions where everyone is talking all the time, that they will be satisfactory either, because listening is also important. So we certainly have to think about wider structures that will enable voices of different people to be in balance. And sometimes we're very happy to be spoken for by others, or to sit back and listen to others speak, and accept that in some way that their speaking resonates with what we would have said if we had had the opportunity to speak. And media play that fundamental role of speaking for or in resonance with us. Um, Media justice, however, um, is an attempt, and this is perhaps the most speculative part of the whole book, to point to a dark corner that media studies has really, I think, not written about at all uh, uh, so far, at least not fully and systematically, which is how, within a human justice perspective, we would take, we would assess the role of media institutions in allowing or enhancing the fair distribution of people's capacities to contribute to the conversations which make up and control the worlds of which they're part. Amartya Sen, in his wonderful work on justice and injustice and his wider theory of human capabilities that underlies his theory of development economics, um, hints at the importance of media and voice in relation to justice, but he doesn't take it much further. And it was writers like Nicholas Gardner and Robin Mansell who made that link. I don't claim to get a lot further in specifying what media justice would be, but I felt that it was important at the end of the book to really open up a horizon of questions that I myself couldn't answer, but that pointed beyond the book to uh, sort of normative questions that we really needed to develop collectively to enrich our normative debate about media. If you like, the sort of underlying theme of the book and of a lot of my work has been that we haven't yet sufficiently um, developed in a sophisticated way the normative language we need to uh, orientate ourselves critically to the media-saturated worlds we live in. Which leads to one final point, which is that although in the final chapter I do um, defend the importance of the 
tradition of thinking about journalistic ethics and media ethics in relation to the rights and wrongs of what media institutions do, and the Leverson inquiry in Britain and the phone hacking scandal that you're probably familiar with outside Britain has certainly underlined the importance of the ethics and maintaining and regulating the ethics of media institutions, and yet at the same time a broader ethical horizon is now arising for all of us, which is thinking about what our lives with media and through media are now like, and whether lives as saturated with media as ours are, are lives that in some way conform to our sense of a good life. I was very struck by Sherry Turkle's book, Alone Together, when it came out, because it seemed for the first time in the writer of someone who'd so often celebrated digital culture to be asking that ethical question, whether the lives, our lives with media through media, in media, are lives that are good lives, lives that we want to lead. And I think this is part of a bigger transformation in media studies today, which is to confront the normative questions that for a long time have been asked by people outside media studies about media, but have often not been taken seriously enough within the discourse of those of us who are actually paid and uh, live our lives um, funded to actually research media, which is, are media good? Uh, for us. In what ways are they good? Could they be better? Are there certain forms of interdependence and dependence that are now developing through our lives with media that are actually deeply problematic and may need to be perhaps not dismantled, but at least questioned so that we can evolve over time a normative language that enables us to stand back from them and criticize them and maybe imagine different lives? It's a really exciting chapter and it really does address themes that don't get talked about, but which all of us with a normative orientation are eager to uh, think about the, the the way in which we might develop a defensible standpoint uh, from which to critique the media. And I will say that the reading of Amartya Sen and the extension and, and uh, of his relatively media neglectful book that is otherwise brilliant is is just worth the entire book's admission. It's just fabulously done in, that, in this final chapter. Um, uh, and I will also say that we've gone through so quickly what is a, a very complex book that, that also delivers on a promise that we, however, haven't been able to talk about at all, which is to supply a kind of toolkit of mid-range theories um, and just because we've been constrained by time, we haven't had a chance to talk about most of those. But I encourage listeners to read the book, um, and there'll, there'll be portable theories that can be applied to specific cases um, uh, th that you'll read about in these chapters. Um, and I will give you a chance, Nick, if there is anything uh, else that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you want to highlight. Well, I suppose one phrase I use to try and capture the complexity of what we're all now dealing with is the media manifold. Um, we no longer in media studies or in life deal with just one medium or connection of one or two media. We deal with a manifold. Um, we deal with a world in which each media connects to another and which we have no choice but to follow various trajectories through it. And that manifold... We're only at the beginning of understanding the complexity of our relationships to it, I think. Yes, the media manifold idea is really important, um, and it's quite clear that we can't think about 
media separately at all anymore. And uh, anyway, that comes through very clearly in the first chapter. Um, and there's more like that. So uh, I do want to ask you, Nick, um, you are disturbingly prolific. Uh, it has been, no doubt, a number of months since you finished work on this book. And uh, I'm curious what you're working on now. I mean, uh, wh- wh- what's up next? Well, I wrote the book partly, as I said, a summation, but also to try and free myself from the stuff I've written before so I wouldn't have to write it again. So if people don't like this version, <laughs> I can't do it anymore. That's that's the best I can do, and maybe people will do it better. But I want to move on to some different things, and there were two things in the pipeline. One is a joint book with Andreas Hepp, who I mentioned before because we worked on media culture and theorizing those. But we're planning to do a book that will be a follow-up of Berger and Bluckman's book from the 1960s called The Social Construction of Reality, um, a book that scandalously neglected media, even in the form of media at that time, TV and radio and the press. Uh, and we want to go back to the fundamental question there of the construction of a social world and social ontology and see how one would, in a very different way from digital starting points, rethink the project of that book to think about the role of the social construction of reality in a digitally saturated world. That's going to be a hard one to write, but that's our ambition for the next three or four years. And in parallel to that, I'm just finishing off some funded uh, empirical uh, research uh, in Manchester where we've been doing a lot of action research with various community organizations. And one theme coming out of that is what I call social analytics, which is that at the same time as some people say our whole world is saturated by data algorithms, and we're more and more living a systemically ordered life, I think we also need to go back and ask a basic phenomenological question, which is how do social actors make sense of that? How do they react to and live the fact that they have to increasingly measure themselves, rate themselves, represent themselves in ordered digital and online forms. I think that's a fascinating story for a digital phenomenology that we're only just beginning to get a handle on. And that, if you like, is my humanistic phenomenological response to the idea of some social theorists that epistemology collapses into ontology and there's no room left for reflexivity anymore because I just don't think that's true. Well, both of those projects sound fascinating and they're actually related to one another uh, in, a, in a straightforward way. Well, I thank you again, Nick, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me today and congratulations again on a wonderful book. Well, thank you very much for listening and for uh, providing me the opportunity to talk. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in Communications. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.